Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Workplace bullying. Chances are we've all seen or experienced it at least once in our lives. A range of behaviours can make us feel powerless at work from eye rolls and being ignored in meetings, to physical harassment. It could happen for a number of reasons, but the most likely culprit is a power imbalance. And it doesn't just come from the office. These behavioural patterns stem all the way back to childhood. Dr Victor Soho is a lecturer and research fellow at the Centre for Workplace Leadership in the Department of Management and Marketing, Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Melbourne. Victor chatted to our reporter, Louise Bennett, about understanding, identifying and curbing these workplace bullying behaviours in the era of Me Too. Welcome to the University of Melbourne studio. It's so lovely to have you here. It's great to be here. So tell me, who are you and what are you known for? So I am Victor Soho. Um, I am a researcher here at the University of Melbourne. And I do research about two things mainly, about leadership and how people think about leaders, lay people think about leaders, and also about abuse at work. That's a nice, concise area of study. It seems like a... It seems very concise in your answer, but a very broad area of study as well. Correct. What made you interested in that area? Well, um, I've always been interested in leadership because we all are embedded in environments where there are leaders, you know, and sometimes they are very positive and drive a lot of important changes and sometimes they are quite destructive and that's probably why I also started doing research about abuse at work because sometimes the abuse is actually coming from those in positions of power and authority from leaders and so basically literally it was just from my own personal experiences uh, that made me interested in understanding um, what are the sources of, of this sort of very negative behavior at work. So tell me then, is when you say your personal observations, are these negative observations? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to have very good bosses in, throughout my life, okay? So people who were quite inspiring and, and really hardworking as well. So they taught me a lot about how to be a good professional. But at the same time, uh, from all the way from the media to my parents to other bosses that I have also had from, you know, sport activities that I've taken part of, I've, I've also seen bosses that have been very very destructive, you know, people who um, don't know how to set the tone about appropriate behavior at work or who are so concerned with performance that they forget that it's also important to take care of people and how they are feeling and that that could actually be really good for performance in the long run. And so I've, I've you know, I've had both experiences in, in throughout my life. But obviously, the negative ones, they, they, they stick with you. Okay, so they actually do teach you a lot about what kind of life you want to lead and what kind of things you want to see in the world or don't want to see in the world. I really want to ask a pertinent mm-hmm. question here. How negative 
have the negative experiences that you've seen mm. or the negative observations that have um, affected people in the workplace. Mm. How far does that go? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's interesting because we, in our research, we typically try to organize all of these negative experiences in terms of intensity and frequency. Okay? So... Some experiences are quite intense, and we, we talk about intensity in relation to the capacity of the experience to cause immediate physical or psychological trauma, okay? So some of the experiences at work are of that nature. So we're talking about literally physical abuse at work, like people punching you, um, all the way to uh, sexual assault at work. So I do re- that's one of the key areas that I do research about. And even though those experiences are, they have a very low frequency, because socially we all know that that's not acceptable and some of that is criminal behavior as well. So people know that they shouldn't do it. Um, Even though they are less frequent, they do happen. And when they happen, they have a large negative impact on people both inside and outside work. Uh, But we also do research on the other end of the continuum. So basically we do research about experiences that are more common they happen more frequently, like sexist comments or sexist jokes or, or racist comments and jokes, or people literally, you're, you're in a meeting talking to somebody and they roll their eyes or they don't look at you in, you know, to your face when you're talking to them. Um, so all of those things are on the, on the other end of the extreme, right? So they won't cause psychological harm immediately. Okay, so they won't cause psychological trauma immediately or physical. But if you're exposed to this on a daily basis, you could imagine how it becomes what we call an everyday hassle. And plenty of research about this, how everyday hassles actually in the long run have a very large negative impact on people's physical, psychological health, on their social functioning. You know, people start their self-efficacy, for instance, typically suffer when people undermine you on a daily basis at work. And so we try to explore the whole continuum of, of this negative behavior at work um, and try to identify the different factors that are predictors of all of this negative behavior. So I imagine then that the more extreme behaviours that cause trauma, immediate trauma at work, probably are less frequent than the ones that are a lot more subtle. Correct. You mentioned this in one of your papers and you called it low-intensity deviant behaviours. So can I assume then that that is then quite common? Yes. So, for instance, in in our own empirical research, you know, done here at the university, and that's what we have seen through meta-analysis and other people's work, um, this low-intensity deviant behaviour, it's the things like... I don't look at you when I'm talking to you or I roll my eyes when you're telling me something or I start talking about you behind your back. Um, And again, sometimes I make jokes on, you know, about you Um, and all of these behaviors. One of the key problems with this behavior is that it's very hard to call out. okay? because we're talking about actions that are kind of sitting on the fence. So it is hard for me to understand the intention behind it. As a person, I will be sitting here wondering, am I imagining this? Or actually, this person is just actively trying to be mean or actively trying to undermine me. Um, the fact that that behavior is in that sort of gray area means a number of things. One of them, it's super hard 
to call out because I don't understand the intention. Um, it means that then the rules about how appropriate or inappropriate it is are also unclear to a lot of people. The fact that the rules are unclear, that I cannot call it out, means that it could go on forever and, and impossible to actually manage it, right? And also, when you do it and other people see you doing it and nobody calls it out, then we all learn that that behavior is appropriate in this environment. So you could create a system where either two people engage in that sort of behavior all the time against each other, or an entire team of people end up thinking that this is exactly how the world should operate. This is, this is a normal way of behaving at work. But again, the research is very clear about this. There is plenty of evidence that this is the kind of behavior that will lead to very negative both personal and occupational consequences for the people who who experience them, and so it it is a pretty complex you know situation here. So I can imagine that calling it out would then also be very difficult, not mm-hmm. just because it's not specific or it's hard to be clear; it's a grey area, but also because the people that you would go to to call out that sort of behaviour would probably be happy to dismiss it. Correct. Because it would mean then they would have to, if they if they didn't dismiss it, it's a lot more work for them. Correct. It's hard to prove. Yeah. Or they don't understand it. You are literally trying to articulate to them why this is a problem for you. But because maybe these people that you're trying to talk to, they actually do it all the time. They don't see it as a problem. That's, so this is one of these areas where we're connecting with leadership. Basically, if your boss doesn't understand that this behavior is problematic, that it leads to negative consequences outside and inside work, and if they are not able to have the language to to really put a concept and articulate exactly what is it that you're talking about, they will dismiss it. It won't be relevant, okay? Um, obviously, if that's the situation, they won't do anything about it. They wouldn't even know where to start. And so that's sort of the way, actually, that's one of the key areas that we're working on. So coming from these papers that, you know, that we've been talking about before, um, we actually developed training program for managers to, to really give them an understanding of the range of behaviors that we're talking about, what are the key predictors of this behavior, and how to prevent it at work, but mainly, literally, just to help them understand that these behaviors do exist and that they do lead to negative consequences. Because otherwise, when people try to go to them and talk about these issues, they will dismiss it straight away. And you said that there are many negative consequences. You said, you know, stress and it builds up over time. Mm -hmm. What are the actual ways that those negative consequences can manifest themselves? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There are many, okay? Um, so in a more immediate way, it will manifest on negative uh, evaluation of your coworkers, of your supervisor, of the even of the task that you're doing on a, on a daily basis. So basically, if we're in this environment and I'm experiencing negative social interactions, it becomes very hard for me to actually work effectively with you because all I'm going to be, well, I'm going to be feeling all this range of negative reactions, okay, which typically leads to withdrawal behavior. And so in the most immediate sense, you will have people feeling quite negative, you know, a range of quite negative emotions towards the environment and the people in it. Um, it will hinder people's performance because you cannot work effectively with others that you feel are mistreating you. Obviously, in the long run, this could lead to anxiety and depression. Plenty of research about that. Ultimately, it could lead to people wanting to leave 
the organization that they are working for. And obviously, if other people in the team are learning that this behavior is allowed, um, well, it could create an entirely toxic environment with high rotation, you know, high turnover of employees um, and also very negative outcomes in terms of productivity. And you talk about the person, the victim, perhaps calling it out. But what do you think the situation is with colleagues? Do you think people see it? Do you think that they become immune to it? Mm. Do do you think that they do see it but they're protecting themselves? Mm. Do you think that other colleagues have a responsibility to call it out more than they do? Yeah, so what we have seen from research is the full range. So some colleagues don't see it. Literally, if they if they have never been the target of such a behavior or somebody they care about or they know, um, they really don't see it, okay? And they this is one of the problems, right? People start making in, what we call internal attributions. So basically, because I don't see it, my explanation of your complaint is that you are a troublemaker, again, using air quotes, right? Um, so that's what, there's definitely that people who don't see it. So, for instance, our research has shown that uh, when you compare managers in organizations, managers versus subordinates, and you ask them how common is this in the work environment, managers typically say this isn't happening, okay? Whereas the, the employees, they say, no, 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 this is a problem, okay? Within the same organization, right? And so the question is, how is this even possible? And there are many explanations. So one of them is that if you're going to be mean or rude to other people, you might not do it in front of your boss because you know that they have power and that they could intervene and call you out or penalize you for that. And so you might be doing it behind, you know, somewhere else where they don't really see you. And so sometimes this blind spot that we're talking about where people don't see that this is actually happening is because it really is happening behind their backs. So that's possible, right? Um So that's one element of it. Another element of it is people being motivated to not see it. Because when you see it and you acknowledge it, then you have the responsibility to do something about it. So in this same situation with the managers, we need to acknowledge that managers might have the motivation to pretend that this isn't happening, at least for two reasons. Too much work, they will actually have to act on it, and reputation. So you need to be... You know, most managers are are concerned about the image of their organization. So if I acknowledge this, well, this is something that happens here. And people are so, well, we're so caught up into this this whole complexity without having good tools how to manage it that people would rather avoid at all having the brand of their organization attached to any of these sort of concepts because they are too toxic, okay? So all of that is happening within organizations. At the same time, you have colleagues who do notice it. They see it, right? And so there, many things could happen, but typically there are two things that happen. One of them is, I see it, um, I feel anxious about it, um, I have no idea what to say or what to do. So I haven't received the training in my personal life, like literally, you know, training in the sort of classic psychological conception of training, which is understanding of training, which is that I haven't had the experience Okay, I don't know what to do here. And they freeze. And they and they walk out of the situation like feeling super anxious, feeling ashamed because they saw that somebody else was being mistreated and they couldn't do anything about it. And that's it. So most of the time these are the kind of colleagues who will come to you later on and will say, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. Like I noticed it and, you know, 
and look for support, you know, look for further support, talk to your boss, but they could not intervene. And there are also people who do know what to do in those situations and they call it out when they see it. And one of the, you know, this is some of the work that I've been doing, some of the work that organizations like Vic Health has been doing and, you know, the Victorian uh, Women Health Association have been doing this, which is to actually provide training on what we call bystander intervention, um, literally teaching people about their range of behaviors, um, what's their meaning, what are the consequences, and then how to effectively intervene in that situation without losing control of the situation, uh, without letting it get out of control and, and escalate. Well, that's an interesting point because I guess it brings up that next question that many people would ask is, how then do you not become frozen with political correctness? Mm. How do you get the tools when it's such a minefield, when there are so many different things, when people have so many different gauges and Mm. opinions on what's acceptable and what's not? Where do how do you get those tools to yeah. be able to draw the line and not just end up in an automaton environment? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that we try to do when we work with organizations is to basically negative behaviors, they compete with positive behavior. So you, we basically have only a limited amount of time and, and space in our life to do a number of things. So if you learn positive behaviors to interact with each other that are effective, that allow for you to get really good outcomes, the probability that you will engage in all of these negative interactions is lower. And so what we try to do, instead of actually being massively concerned with trying to police the negative behavior, is that we actually try to teach people effective way of communicating with each other, effective way of solving problems and negotiating situations that are complex. And provide people with tools to understand that too, okay? And so I think that's a more effective way to manage, particularly within organizations, right, where we, we obviously, we care about people's well-being, but we also care about people being productive and getting the job done. And so if you struggle solving problems that have to do, so it, it happens all the time. We're having a discussion that is conceptual about the issue, the task at hand, and it gets personal, and it gets personal because people don't know how to better argue their point. And so literally teaching people how to articulate exactly what they mean with the right words, how to give proper feedback, for instance, is one thing that we actually do work a lot on. Because when you give poor feedback, that typically creates a negative impression and people retaliate in a way. And so basically what I'm trying to say here is that there, are, there is a range of very positive behaviors that are good for social interaction and good for task performance that we could teach people. We're talking about problem solving, negotiation, how to give proper feedback, how to actively listen to understand what other people have to say. And all of these things will reduce the likelihood of misunderstanding in the communication that we have with each other. And so this will definitely help with situations of low intensity deviant behavior, okay, where it is mainly around misunderstanding. Now, if we talk about other aspects of negative behavior, such as racist comment or sexist comment, we need to engage in, in, in another level of intervention. Because in that case, we need to work on empathy, on people understanding the negative impact of that behavior on others. But also, particularly within organizations, it's about values. So basically, most organizations worldwide will have a set of values that 
people are meant to aspire to live up to within an organization. And so what we try to do in terms of you know racism and sexism and this sort of lie, abuse that have to do with people's identities, basically, um, is that we, we try to connect with what are these important values within the organization and how making sexist comments or sexist jokes or, or discriminating against specific groups actually don't match the values of the organization, okay? And so, again, what we're trying to do here is basically articulating to people the behaviors that will allow them to live up to those values. And typically, those behaviors have to do with being respectful, with um, being responsible about the job that you have to do, or with being objective, or with being accurate. All of those things compete with racism and sexism and xenophobia and, and you know, ableism or ageism as well. And so, so um, you know, the point is that depending on the kind of abuse that we're talking about, um, there, there is a range of tools there where you could actually work on positive behavior as opposed to having to always focus on policing the negative stuff that people are doing. Well, that's a very good segue for me into Me Too. Because mm-hmm. you've written about Me Too as well, yeah. um, and I can see how this relates. How do you see how it all relates together? Um, to me, they are intimately related. Um, as I think, I mean, the, the Me Too phenomenon is so complex because um, you need to understand there are multiple levels of analysis, okay? Um, in the research that, that you just mentioned that we've been writing about, we try to understand it from a public health point of view. So basically, it is so pervasive, that it has become an everyday hassle for a number of people. So it is a, a community-level stressful event, okay? So that is something that we need to understand in terms of the implications of that behavior. But as I said before, we are very much interested in prevention. And from that point of view, we need to look at what are the drivers of the sexual abuse that women experience at work, which is what the Me Too movement is, is about. And so there are many drivers of that. Um, at the most basic level, it is the sexual objectification of women. The fact that, unfortunately, in many countries, we still have the belief that women are objects. You know, women are, are not considered as humans as men are. Okay, And so we need to work on that. So every time that we focus too much on women's physical appearance, every time that we dismiss that women have to say because of how they are dressed or because of the tone of their voice and so on. So all of these small elements actually help to reinforce that idea that women are allowed, we are allowed to devalue women, okay? women in society. So that's one element of it. Then we have the issue of where is it that people learn all of these attitudes or values and that start at home when parents are making decisions about who is going to be engaging in which kind of activities, um, when we start talking to both our, you know, our girls and boys and you know, our intersex children, um, what roles they are meant to be playing in society. So literally, that's happening at home. We know that we have a, an issue at schools with the way teachers interact also with boys and girls and how that reinforces that separation between them. And so basically... There, what we're talking about is an issue that is multi-layered that definitely starts with the devaluation of women um, and then is reinforced by a number of social structures. So the fact that we don't have enough women in positions of power means that for a lot of men, it is actually they find it hard to see women as equal or women as people who could be in positions of power and make effective decisions about important issues. And that means that then it becomes very easy for you to devalue them whenever you're interacting with them. Obviously, also in work environments, one of the key problems that we have is hyper-competition. 
So basically, if, if we're in a system of, of reward where you have to perform at all costs and bring money in at all costs, you know, and be productive and profitable at all costs, it means that it is very easy for you to start using very negative tools to achieve that. So for instance, gender harassment, which is a specific kind of sexual harassment um, in which you devalue women, is not about sexual attraction. It's literally about devaluing women, about being hostile toward women. That is more common when men and women are competing for the same resources or positions within an organization. And so basically, a winner-takes-all system of rewards within organizations, you know, where those who are performing well get disproportionate uh, rewards for their performance, could actually be driving a lot of the abuse that women are experiencing at work. Um, and so what we need to understand here is that there are a number of social factors that are actually having a massive impact on these sort of behaviors that are happening at work. But then there are also specific organizational structures and systems that are actually facilitating for, you know, for this abuse to take place. So what do we do about that? Well, we have, we, again, we have a massive range of actions that we could do about that. From, you know, from my point of view, because that's also one of my areas of research, we actually do need more women in positions of power and for many reasons. So we need more women in positions of power because when women are in positions of power, they actually create legislation and policy that protects other women. Okay, the same way that men have been creating policies and structures that actually do protect men, whether we did it intentionally or not. That's what we did. And so we need more women in positions of power so that they could actually have a voice about how to, how we are going to manage these situations. Okay, so this is very important because so right now I'm a guy, you know, talking about this, and there are a number of women who actually have a, a number of solutions there, right? So if we have more women in positions of power, they get to have their voice heard. Um, and actually create rules about how to manage the situation. So that's one thing. The other thing which we go at, the, at that, that next level in terms of social attitudes, it is that when we see more women in positions of power, we actually start understanding that women are able to think in a complex way, to make important decisions, to make moral decisions, right? And that's super important. I'm not kidding. There's actually research about that, right? It might sound pretty weird what I'm saying here, but... There is research about how people evaluate women once they see more women in positions of power. And in those situations, people actually learn that women are equally competent as men and that they also have the capacity to make very complex moral decisions. Whereas in a general basis, people actually evaluate women lower in those competencies, if you like. And so this, this will be an, a starting point, okay? And it's not trivial at all. Another, obviously, another starting point is at the most basic level, within organizations, people need to make rules clear about what behavior is acceptable and what behavior is not acceptable. That's very clear. So you could do it on the induction process. You could do it when you're advertising the job. You could actually declare what are the expected behaviors of people within my organization. Um, in many organizations, you're meant to be meeting with your manager at least once a month in a one-on-one -on -one situation, okay, where the manager is asking you, how are you going? Is everything working for you? Where well, you are meant to, you could actually use that space to talk to people about how are you interacting with other people. And if you have any comments from anybody about inappropriate behavior from an employee, it doesn't have to come down to a formal complaint about abuse. It could just be that conversation where you actually say, hey, people have mentioned that you've been doing this and this and that. Um, what do you have to say about it? 
how you know how useful do you think behaving like that could be in this environment how do you think other people are feeling okay so you could also do that um you could put it in performance evaluations so at the end of the year when you're doing a, a formal performance assessment you could actually go and articulate what are the behaviors that you expect people to perform in a work environment and if this person has been engaging in things that are counterproductive you could call it out there um and so there is a range of things. The bystander intervention that we talked about earlier in the, during the interview, that is a very effective mechanism. It doesn't rely on a formal complaint process. It's just a colleague who feels now in the capacity to tell you why that behavior is not appropriate. I th obviously, I think compliance and regulation are, are, is crucial here. Um, but for a range of the behaviors that we're talking about, um, having more people around you who could actually call it out straight away as opposed to letting the whole situation escalate, right? If you call it out straight away, that is a much more effective way for everybody to save face too, you know, as opposed to getting into a, a, an unworkable situation where people will lose their jobs. Is that what you think perhaps Me Too is? If a child came up to you and asked you to explain Me Too to them, what yeah. would you say? Well, at the most basic level, I would tell the child that Me Too is a, a movement to explain to other people who haven't been paying attention the kind of abuse that women have been experiencing. So at the most basic level, I feel that that's what it was about, okay? So basically, for women to see each other eye to eye, you know, and say, you're not alone, you know, you're not the first person who experienced this, this is happening to a lot of us. But then, you know, when you are not a woman, you know, from my point of view, it is about me understanding what's the experiences that women, uh, you know, what's the nature of that experience that women are having, that it could be like a massive blind spot for me, okay? Nowadays, it's becoming ma many more things, okay? It's becoming a, a political movement, and politically in the, in the sense of showing concern for the community movement, okay? Not political in terms of political parties. Um, it's actually, you know, that's exactly what, what's going to be hopefully powerful about the Me Too movement if it becomes a force for people to recognize how important it is to actually show respect for each other and treat people with consideration. So do you think then that that sort of movement needs to come into play when it comes to this, I'm looking at your words again, covert and indirect forms of victimisation in the workplace? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this, this is the thing, right? Um, it is helping many organisations to actually say, OK, I need to talk about this because um, it is a problem. And so if we start the conversation, we could go from people having some pretty basic, if you like, understanding of some notions, and eventually people will actually start developing the language, developing the understanding, and, and the capacity to have a nuanced, granular discussion about this. Okay, So in my fantasy world, that's what I expect to see happening in many organizations. Unfortunately, um, we are not seeing that everywhere. Okay, In many organizations, we still see people who... Well, literally, in many organizations, this conversation is not happening. It's just not happening. People are in so many afraid. Or the majority. Oh, well, I don't. I wouldn't know if it is the majority of the organization, right? But in many, this isn't happening. So people either are, again, too afraid of the reputation of the organization, or the abuse is so pervasive in that environment, right? That people are having different conversations. So I don't know, like literally a week ago or so, there was this article in Bloomberg about, um, well, the Me Too movement and Wall Street. 
And it was terrifying to read it because one of the key things that they that they were saying is that now these men working on Wall Street were arguing that they shouldn't meet with women, they shouldn't hire women, they shouldn't promote women, they shouldn't have women around them at all. They should never meet with a woman. You know, you should never meet with a woman, with, you know, with closed doors um, because then you could be accused of sexual harassment. And so my question is, what are you doing? So literally, what is it that you do? in this environment that you reckon that just by being next to a woman, you're going to be accused of sexual harassment. So you must be doing something quite terrible, right, uh, for that to be a real concern. Um, but obviously, this is backlash. This is literally people who don't want to change, who, who don't want to acknowledge that part of the discussion that we're having is also about people saying, I have enough social support to ask for respect that now I expect from you. And they decided not to acknowledge the fact that they need to treat women with respect. Obviously, all that was described in the article in the U.S. is illegal. We're talking about workplace discrimination, everything that was articulated there. And that's very interesting, too, that these people who were willing to make those comments, at, you know, for some reason, they, they didn't understand that what they were describing and, and recommending to do or saying that they would do is actually called workplace discrimination which is not legal. Do you think the Me Too movement is all positive? What do you think about the fact that things are growing, but then there's also flack that the Me Too movement attracts? And you mentioned Bloomberg before, mm-hmm. yeah. and perhaps the desire for men, some men to not have anything to do with women mm-hmm. for fear of repercussions. Do you think it's all good? That's a, that's a great question. Um, my, my view is that change will always generate backlash. So when you think about the civil rights movement in the U.S., it wasn't pretty at all, but it had to be done, okay? And when you think about apartheid in South Africa and, and you know, the struggle to eliminate it, that, well, we haven't entirely eliminated it, but um, the point that I'm trying to make here is that always when we're moving towards more progress, towards a specific group of people within society uh, being recognized as fully humans who are meant to have the same civil rights and, you know, the same level of respect, you will always get people who will push back because, unfortunately, some people think that, that civil rights are pie, Okay, so if you if some people get some of the pie, others won't be able to get any of it. It's not the case, but that's sort of how these rights in society have been construed. And so I think it is very positive. I think it is super important for people who have been feeling marginalized and disrespected and abused to speak up and to find a million ways to articulate that. And that's what we have seen with the Me Too movement. It is not a single movement. We have, we have an, a million of different voices coming out and articulating their experience. I couldn't think of anything better than that, uh, particularly when we're talking about marginalized groups. But we are definitely seeing some negative you know, consequences. The fact that we are seeing a lot of backlash from both men and women. You know, people who, first of all, don't want to have anything to do with this movement because they, find that they think it is too toxic. Um, also, people just literally pushing back. So... You know, things like the, you know, men rights groups. So these these men who now think that their rights are being somehow affected by the fact that other people are also considered humans and equals. It's, that's not new. Socially, when you look about, you know, the history of humankind, that's not new. That is backlash. What we need to do is to, which is something beautiful that Vic Health has done, which is to actually 
articulate to people the the range of of behaviors that you will see when people are pushing back um, so that we understand what backlash looks like and also the range of things that we could do to deal with that backlash, you know, so that we understand that there are some people out there that are so polarized that spending all of our energy trying to make them understand what we're talking about, like it could be futile, okay? Um, but the large majority of humans, actually, you know, they are, they, they are fairly open to listen uh, to what you have to say. And so we need to identify who are the group of people who are willing to listen, to understand, to change their attitude, and we need to work very hard with them. And obviously, a big part of the problem that we're seeing is the people who are just shutting down. So they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to engage. They don't want to have anything to do with it because that leaves you with no room, you know, to actually intervene. And so what I think what would be a very interesting research question for us is to identify what predicts that. Basically, what predicts the fact that some people don't want to have anything to do with it um, because that doesn't leave you any room for, for change. It's such a clear, clean issue in so many ways because mm. it is so pertinent to mm. everyone's mm. life. Mm. I mean, there are very few people on the planet that aren't um, in some way affected by these mm. things, both either sexually or in the workplace. And yet it is so insidious and yeah. difficult to put your finger on and yeah. work out how to actually come to a solution if you were to give one piece of advice to people on how to combat this sort of bullying, this sort of victimisation, both sexual and in the workplace, what would you say? Mm, that's, that's an interesting question. So my first answer would be there is no silver bullet. Okay. Um, I want, but this is the, the question that you just asked me is exactly the question that every single partner organization that I work with asks me. Okay. Everybody wants this unique solution that is going to solve everything in the world um, for organizations, right? I think the key thing is define what positive, respectful behavior is meant to look like within your organization and start reinforcing that with the way you pay, with the way you promote people, okay? So basically, people, we do. So people do whatever is being reinforced with bonuses, with promotions, uh, with praise. We do that. And so at the most basic level, at least try to identify what, what respect looks like in this environment. And let's actually start paying people for showing that respect. Um, so that would be, you know, one, one starting point. But definitely by no means the, the, the only thing that we should do to, to work this out. So what do you say to people that say, get over it or harden up? Or get a thicker skin, or don't dwell on the negative. Yeah. So, what, more, more, a lot of the work that we do is, is literally on educating employees, you know, so that they understand that this idea of well, actually, they are hardening up. So, when you're, when you, whenever you find yourself in a situation where you want to tell other people, you know, toughen up. Remember, you don't know the the full extent of every, every everybody else's experiences right in life and so they probably have already toughened up a lot because they are coping with a massive range of very difficult situations um and so you know think twice before you that's what i would tell to somebody who is who is willing to say such a thing stop there think twice before speaking up because Probably this person has been coping with a lot of difficult stuff and they are actually pretty tough, but it does get to you in the long run. 
Thank you so much for speaking to me today, Victor. It's been really delightful and um, hopefully there's a light at the end of this tunnel that we've been talking about. Um, Just to finish us off, next time someone says they're being victimised, what would you like people to think? Um, Well, I think I I want people to to empathise with them, to actually make an effort to put themselves in the situation of the person who is talking to them and to listen. Sometimes people just want to be heard. Victor Soho, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Dr. Victor Soho, lecturer in leadership and research fellow at the Centre for Workplace Leadership in the Department of Management and Marketing, Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Louise Bennett. Eavesdrop on Experts, stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on December 21, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. Don't forget to drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.